0: Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. What's it like to get manipulated into a cult and how hard is it to get out? Well, talk to somebody that this happened to. Is your religious freedom under attack? There's a case now before the courts and who scrooged a local business owner out of his hard-earned cash as he's trying to survive this pandemic. Let's get talking. your point. You just don't ever get to call about getting to the point. Do you understand? There is a point that point where enough is enough.
1: Here's Alex
2: Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. I can announce that
1: Canada has secured our second agreement for early doses of COVID-19 vaccines. Canada is now contracted to receive up to 168,000 doses of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine before the end of December. Pending Health Canada approval.
0: Santa came early for the Prime Minister. Hello, Alex Pearson, with you on this Tuesday, December 15th. And okay, more good news. But let us read between the lines. So here's what we've got. we got uh, announcements today. 168,000 Moderna doses before the end of December. We've ordered a 40 million of this particular vaccine. And the good thing about Moderna is it's way, way easier to deliver to uh, sensitive areas like areas in the north. It can be moved into places like long-term care because it's not finicky. It doesn't have to be stored the way Pfizer does at minus 80. And so it's expected to be approved by Health Canada, likely tomorrow or next day. And we're also going to get another 200,000 doses of Pfizer by next week. So when you actually look at those numbers and combine them, and then you cut them in half, it looks like 210,000 Canadians could be vaccinated by end of month. But this was, uh, again, unexpected news, and the procurement minister herself today admitted, yeah, we weren't expecting this. We have to remember that we weren't
2: expecting to get December doses, that we've been aggressively negotiating with suppliers four early doses.
0: If by negotiation, you mean begging. Uh, But that's, you know, why the prime minister told us initially that we wouldn't be getting them until March, because that's when they thought they were coming. And it looks like maybe the pressure from the opposition and threats to their political fortune forced the Trudeau government to do whatever they had to do to get something, just anything. But Anita Anand, who is the Minister of Procurement, she was pressed on a few things, you know, like, if we have the biggest portfolio, why are we then so far behind other countries? And she admitted that the brunt of the vaccines and the contracts that were put in place mean that most vaccines won't actually come until later in the spring. And that's why now Canada is scrambling to get this IT system in place to track the vaccines nationally. So, look, I'm glad we're getting early delivery, but this notion that the Trudeau government uh, was ahead of the game is silly. But they do have to manage expectations because these big announcements, they get very exciting. And I think they give a lot of people false hope and a lot of people with false hope will eventually check out and start to get really angry. But the reality is we'll see a few vaccines now, but we won't be getting vaccinated for months after a lot of other countries have done most of their population. So then the conversation turns to, you know, who gets it first? And obviously, you know, the elderly, uh, those with underlying health issues, uh, frontline workers, of course, those should be people should be first. And and anyone who argues that is uh, is on the losing end of that debate. But who is next in line? Like who is considered essential? I've resigned myself to being last of the line and, and I'm I'm fine with that. Not because I have reservations about the thing. I'm not really worried about getting this thing, Uh, but I'm younger-ish, and I'm in fairly good health. Plus, I, I can work at home. But There's this growing debate of who is essential, and the teachers' unions made clear today that they are essential. They want to get priority position on vaccine delivery. And sure, they're essential. But then you have to ask, are they more essential than, let's say, uh, grocery staff who've been stocking shelves and making sure our food gets bagged and and out the store? Are are they more essential than truck drivers who are fueling our supply chain? Or the transit driver who's got all sorts of people around him on on TTC or rail or whatever? Are they more essential than migrant workers who have been absolutely ravaged by COVID-19? Or those in germ-filled homeless shelters? What about cops? What about firefighters? What about those in meatpacking plants? Look, I have no issue with teachers being vaccinated as soon as possible. But the question then becomes, are they more essential than the ones I've just listed off? Which brings us to the political side of this vaccine rollout, because there will be politics at play. And what we need then is to make decisions based on science. And the unions will argue that they're at more risk because they're around snotty-nosed kids. But the data to date, that doesn't support that. Certainly, as community spread grows, teachers can be more at risk, but I think a lot of that depends on the activities they do outside of school, because we have seen cases, but what we're not seeing is the community spread. So there is a difference. So based on that, uh, teachers aren't right now at any more risk than the kids they teach or certainly the meat pack and plant employees, or the person at the grocery store. And unlike most other essential workers, I mean, teachers do have the option of working from home online. And they're also guaranteed, unlike most essential workers, they get a guaranteed paycheck. So they can take time off if they need to. But the Premier was asked about this. And let's just say, uh, well, teachers are just the latest making these demands.
1: We're going to have everyone calling us. I, I spoke to the, the food industry, agriculture industry, the, the, the meat packers, the pork packers, chicken yesterday. And they said, well, everyone's eating our food and, and we, sh- we should be next in line. Now we'll get the teachers, we'll get everyone else.
0: He's right. And if the teachers want to be front of the line, what would that mean? Does that mean across the province? because the science won't back the it either because there's only certain areas right now that are hot zones. And then you're gonna get other teachers unions saying, well, hold on, that's not fair. But having said that, I mean, I don't really have an issue with teachers getting vaccinated as soon as possible. And yes, before me, because you know, I want the kids in school. I want them in a stable environment that is as normal as we can make it because it's crucial. Plus, this takes away, it would take away any excuses of teachers unions saying we're going to shut things down. But should they be given then priority over others? I mean, the science for now may not be on their side, but there's no question the debates are already underway. Great to have you here with us on this Tuesday night. We're going to switch gears a little bit to a book I read recently. This is a uh, graphic novel that was written by a very, very close friend of mine who happens to be a former colleague that I covered the courts with for a couple of decades when I was a reporter and she was a court sketch artist and reporter. And I recall the day, I recall it perfectly the day she said, Hey, I'm writing a book. And of course I laughed. And now years later, this graphic novel is out and it takes us into this really crazy world of manipulation, control, and ultimately she would escape, but not before derailing a dream of becoming a figure skater, but it did lead to a career in a very dark world of courts where she uh, would meet me. So it can't be all that bad. Marianne Boucher joining us now, former journalist, courts sketch artist, And now I can call you an author. Hi, thanks for having me, Alex. That's not the exciting response I was expecting, but nonetheless, <laughs> you're a very uh, serious journalist now. Um, so let's talk a little. We're going to talk about the book after the commercial break, but I wanted to kind of talk to you because it always puzzled me. You were always so artistic and always just, um, well, certainly more bright and bushy-tailed than I was. But how did you get into court reporting, given that your dream was to, to pursue figure skating?
2: Well, on my way to uh, join the Ice capades, a funny thing <laughs> happened. <laughs> I ended up, instead of uh, joining Ice Capades, I joined a fanatical religious cult, Um But having uh, survived that experience and coming home, um, that experience gave me the courage to pursue what I really loved, and that was drawing. And so um, I went to Ontario College of Art after that and um, then ended up landing a very rare full-time drawing job in news, which led to reporting, which led to me meeting you. And Mm. yes, covering (laughs) the dark side
0: of life. It really is truly the darkest of worlds. And until you're in it and working in it and covering it, you don't really realize, um, you know, what kind of of wheel um, your life is going to be. And so that's where we met. And I think for me anyway, I can say that it was like a survival uh, mechanism, because at least I had you to bounce stuff off and, and, and laugh at all the inappropriate uh, times and, and that. But it was so fascinating to watch you because we did different things. I was a straight up journalist writing and, and crafting stories, whereas your stories were told through sketching and how did you zero in on telling that story because really you only had time to do a couple of different pictures sometimes you had to do them really quickly to get you know uh, you know uh, certain appearances but how did you zero in to tell a story through your pictures
2: oh that's right so um, it was uh, something years to develop that uh, skill to marry the drawings with the words, and as you know we're listening to um, Hours, well, days of information, and we had to uh, write a story that was like a minute long. And so you're condensing, condensing to the essence of the story and then match the drawings to it. And um, so I've been drawing and matching the words to difficult
0: stories for a long time, many years. Yeah, I would say, what, 25 years, 25? And you've covered some of the biggest high profile cases, certainly in um, in the province of Ontario, Uh, But it was always fascinating to me where you would zero in on an expression, um, you know, or or a moment in the case where I would say, I didn't even see that, but you did.
2: Yeah, so um, certainly you're looking at it. I am. I was
0: coming at it from a different perspective, a visual
2: perspective and um, watching people very closely and seeing uh, just being an observer Basically, but um, like take Paul Bernardo, for example, like I drew that guy like a hundred times, you know, I should have a funeral for my eyes. No kidding. Like (laughs) to, you know, to contemplate somebody's face for that long. I mean, that's the only way to do it
0: is to get right in there and witness. Right. Right. You have, um, I can't even imagine the collection you have done over the years and everyone, every, everyone in the court world, like the lawyers, everyone knows who you are and what you did. You, you did a number of sketch artists that the late Christy Blatchford had up in her place. I'm still expecting that I'm going to get a couple, but you, you're you known for your drawing because it was a really unique way um, of, of sketching. You had this just very kind of different style of doing it and it stood out. People loved when you were in the courtroom because they knew that they were going to get their moment.
2: Uh, Right. Well, thanks for saying so. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I had like a very direct heavy hand. I really kind of went for it. I never uh, spent too much time um, on, you know, the surroundings. I was really people focused. So and especially on the lawyers and the moments, the drama, what I was looking for was, you know, where's the narrative? Where's the action? Because we've got a pretty staid situation here. And it's staged and people have their backs to you. So you're really waiting for that moment and then just strike pretty fast. You have, like, the skill is to really grab a likeness with lightning speed and move on. And plus, we're taking notes and we're doing Twitter and we're running out of the courthouse to get interviews with the families. We're supporting the families. Like, there's a, a hell of a lot going on and it's a super stressed job.
0: Yeah, it was. And the interesting thing, I mean, the whole purpose of a court sketch artist is because, you know, in Canada, you're not you're not allowed to have any television cameras, you're not allowed to have any cameras. And so the only way we can get um, an inside look of a courtroom is through people like you. Um, and that's it. That's all we've got. And so I, you know, when you look through your collection of of works, and they are works, I mean, it was um, an assignment for you in your newsroom. But when you look through some of those works now, or do you look through those works?
2: Uh, every once in a while, I get someone who requests, requests a drawing and I have boxes, like I have like five feet of drawings uh, when, until I went digital. I was probably the first one that went uh, drew from um, a tablet and then later an iPad, uh, which I love the technology. I really embraced it and I was surprised no one else followed along. They kept with uh, pen and paper. Um, yeah, you, yeah, you had a very
0: like, interesting little sketch pad that um, was <laughs> digital and you could just write on and change colors. It was a really nifty little tool. But um, is there one moment, I mean, for me, there's a certain case, like it was the uh, Randall Dooley case, which was our first oh, case that gonna, we did together. Yeah, and that's, i that's going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's the one case where I, I see those, <laughs> I see those autopsy pictures. Every oh, yeah. single day, the ones that you said don't look at those—would you yeah. stop looking at those? And I couldn't stop looking at them. And now that image is like—I see it every single day. What is the one case that stays with you?
2: Uh, well, you know, no one is immune to the constant exposure of trauma in the courts, and I think that media outlets realize that now, and so do does the, the, the you know criminal legal profession. But um, yeah, I I think dismemberment cases where I'm drawing. I'm studying photos of dismembered people and those autopsy photos were definitely some of the, that was the toughest stuff I think I've ever seen. It was a little kid, a little boy.
0: Yeah. I know they don't really train you for that in journalism school. You know, you're, you're going to see some pretty awful things, um, but you do, you tend to see just the worst of the worst and, and, uh, and eventually you learn to cope with it or you don't. And, um, and since you've now left that world, Uh, You don't miss it, do you? Oh,
2: not at all. Not at all. Um, (laughs) um, You know, when you're in media, uh, you see a school bus and you see like a death trap, you
0: know?
2: Uh, But now now, like a a school bus turns back into a school bus. It's a vehicle carrying children and they're probably happy and safe on there.
0: It's funny you say that because my husband always says that you always go to the worst case scenario. And I'm like, well... because it's just ingrained in me, because that's just (laughs) what I saw for so many years. But what I didn't know about you, and I'm absolutely stunned, and we're going to talk about it next, is that, you. I mean, I I spent a lot of time with you. I had no idea that you got manipulated into a cult, because had I known... I would have been asking all sorts of questions. So I want to talk to you about this book that you mentioned a few years back you were going to write, and now it's out. It's called Talking to Strangers. This is a memoir of my escape from a cult. I have so many questions about this, and we'll dive into that next after this quick break. I'm Alex Pearson speaking with Marianne Boucher. We'll uh, get into the book right after this as to how someone can get sucked into this kind of life and how hard is it to get out. We'll do that on Point here on Global News Radio. All right, so we are speaking to Marianne Boucher, who's a former journalist, court sketch artist, and now author, as well as a a close friend and colleague of mine. And she has written this book called Talking to Strangers, a memoir of my escape from a cult. I read this book a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't know what to expect. It's not a long read, but now I know why it took you so long to write, because this is a graphic novel. So it's almost like reading a comic book. But when I realize how much effort went into these pictures, now I'm like, okay, now I know why I, I shouldn't tease her because there's so much detail in these pictures that I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop looking at the pictures to, to, to learn your story. Oh, thank you. So tell me, like, how how come a I didn't know about this? Like, how did you keep this from everybody?
2: Well, it was something that I didn't talk about, and I certainly didn't intend to write about it but um i don't know if maybe it was your first graphic novel but it, you, you can see that it's a beautiful format to tell difficult stories like mm-hmm. we had been like i had been doing for the past 30 years so um graphic novels deal with big topics you know sexual identity mental health trauma and, and uh um when i started reading them and i got to one called stitches by David Small, I realized like it hit me with tremendous force that I could actually tell my story this way and this might be the only way that I could be comfortable and that I could uh, talk about this story and so um, that's how that's how it all started.
0: And so when you proposed to do this book, how did they take it? Because I don't think any other books have really been done like this, um, you know, this, uh, this may, like it's a big, it's a fairly big book, but what, what did the publishing company, have? what was their reaction?
2: Well, they were extremely interested in the story. Um, It's a chilling story. And um, um, they, uh, Penguin Random House, I think it was their first, that imprint, it was their first attempt at a graphic novel. And so we struggled through and it was a huge learning process, like going to comic university for me. And so we managed to uh, pull it out and they were super supportive and uh, very brilliant editors over there.
0: And so you go like this goes back to your childhood. I had no idea you were even interested in figure skating. I mean it just to me I'm like it doesn't even it didn't even dawn on me. Um but you your dream was to be a figure skater but you weren't really tailor-made for the figure skating world. And so you decided that you were going to try and uh, try out for the ice capades, which again, knowing you the way I do, I'm like, I cannot picture this at all. But I mean, you would have been the black sheep of the ice capades. Let me just tell you, Um, having said that, that was your dream. And so you got a ticket on your, it was your big first adventure. you go out to California with your parents' blessing and, and, and almost immediately like things went sideways.
2: Yeah, I did want to try out for the ice craze. I was at the end of my competitive career. And, uh, you know, I pictured, you know, the most glamorous traveling ice show in the world. There was lots of kinds of jobs you could get. and But I never made it to my audition because immediately I was approached by a couple on the beach who um, talked to me all day. And they were, you know, smart and kind and very interested in me. And I had no idea at the time that they had a hidden agenda to control me or that I was being love bombed um, and the excessive amount of attention really appealed to my 18 year old self. And so I spoke with them and they told me they were university students who were setting up programs to help homeless people. And they certainly didn't come out and tell me what really was going on, but um, uh, what they were doing appealed to me. I thought, you know, maybe this escape, could have a higher purpose. It didn't have to be ice capades. It could be something, you know, was more meaningful. And so, you know, everything I had ever wanted up until then seemed meaningless and uninspired. And, uh, I got into their van. I went with them and, uh, (laughs) I ended up in, in a camp where, you know, the,
0: the conditions of thought reform were played out and, um, How long was that over? Because it stuns me knowing you because you are a pretty cautious person, but you get into this van. But how long between you trusting these people and then them kind of, um, you know, really talking you out of your audition and then practicing? How long did it take them to completely win you over? uh, Well, um, brainwashing or thought reform happens
2: very quickly. It can happen within, you know, 72 hours. And uh, you'll see, I go through the process in the book of um, the conditions that are, have to be met in order to change someone's mind like that. Yeah. And, you know, there's it's all deceptive recruitment. They don't give away any information about what the group is actually about. And, you know, people in a cult don't know they're in a cult until they try to leave. And that's when you find out you're, you're the last to know. So, and also... Um, People always think that there was a spiritual aspect to this, and there wasn't in, initially. And also, River Moon isn't even mentioned until you're way in over your head. So uh, it's all about manipulation
0: and really your parents um i think if not for their dogged kind of um intuition and their in, and their and your mom saying look uh, we got to get in touch with her i mean sh- they were on this and they ended up flying out to to try to get you um but was it when you tried to leave and call your parents that they started trying to take control of you well um like I said, when you're in a cult, you don't know you're in a cult. So I mm-hmm. phone home and I tell my
2: parents this wonderful news that I found these great people and they're doing something even better than skating and I'm not coming home. And so, um, I, I credit the, the young and the restless because <laughs> they, <laughs> they did a, a thing where, um, Nikki, who is it? Oh, yeah, I know that scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, they get involved in a cult and their dad has to rescue them. So, um, my parents were very resourceful, and it came together quite quickly for them. So, um, they hired a deprogrammer, and I was kidnapped and deprogrammed, and all I was back home within three months. So,
0: I, that is just shocking.
2: They're one of the heroes in the story for sure, but you'll meet other heroes along the way, like the the young deprogrammer.
0: Yeah. Who I who to this day I don't think you have any relationship with, but you thank them in the, in the book. I mean, I. I think it's so fascinating to get this perspective um, and knowing you the way I do, the fact that if it can happen to you, you could see how it could happen to someone who's much more vulnerable and, and would not have as much support. Maybe they're on the margins. So I found the whole thing fascinating. In hindsight, afterwards, how long did it take you to get back up on your feet? Oh, well, I think that the um, the uh,
2: the results of trying to leave a cult... Um, exiting a cult, it's well documented that there's m- major symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder involved. And um, that wasn't invented until 1980. The very summer that I was there, post traumatic stress disorder became recognized as a disorder. So it was in its infancy. But anyway, uh, I was also going to say, you know, um, this my book is kind of like a public service announcement for. Our need to focus on critical thinking. And there are methods people can use to remove our ability to think critically. And being aware of this will help us. And uh today, you know, I would say it's very relevant because of misinformation spread mm-hmm. on the internet. And you know, how you know, the truth isn't always just given.
0: Wow. It's fascinating. I gotta be honest. I was like emailing you and texting you when I was reading it, going, is this like I didn't I didn't know anything about this. So you're private, but uh, it is a fascinating world. A really a yeah, fascinating world. So I appreciate you sharing it.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you.
0: It was you. So you went from a cult to the courts. To from cult to courts. There you go. The book is uh, "Talking to Strangers: A Memoir of My Escape from a Cult." It is available now in bookstores or online. The author, Marianne Boucher, who's also a very good friend, and I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks nice talking to you all. Tomorrow is going to be a craptacular day, but the kids will love it, and they have nothing else to do, so works out, I think, for uh, a lot of people. We are uh, starting to see some pushback to the restrictions in place, and we saw cases involving both the Bay and an appliance store trying to overturn lockdown measures. Those cases were unsuccessful because at the end of the day, our charter does not protect our right to work or earn a living. Go figure. Go figure. But there's a new case that may actually have more success because your right to practice religion is a charter right. And with places of worship capped at 10, Those who want to uh, worship at the sacred time are being denied the right to practice their faith. And so there is a case going before the courts right now, or when actually today before the courts, and it's Toronto International Celebration Church, where they've been arguing that allowing only 10 people into their 1,000-person congregation, so imagine how many people that is and how big of a space, makes no sense given the same type of space, let's say a Costco or a big box store, has no such cap. You see way more than 10 people in those places. Let us bring in Christine Van Gein. She is the uh, litigation director over at, uh, also with the motion, involved in the motion for intervenor status in this challenge. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the case in question is different than the businesses, as I uh, described, because, in fact, um, there is a charter right to the freedom of religion. And, and as I understand uh, from reading the latest on this, this is actually been accepted, and so it's going to go into court.
3: Yeah, so um, the charter protects freedom of religion. It's in Section 2A of the Charter. It's one of the oldest and most fundamental rights that we have. Um, it predates the charter. It's an old and it's a very old established right in liberal democracies. Um, and it's a, it's one of our most fundamental rights. So the status of the, this case right now is uh, cross-examinations took place today. On Friday, there's going to be an injunction hearing, which is the church has asked for a Suspension of enforcement on the ten-person limit, so the government would not be able to enforce the ten-person uh, limit on religious worship. What the church has said is that they they would be totally fine with you know a capacity limit on the church, but for them, you know, a, a thousand. Uh, plus person auditorium 10 people just doesn't make sense it's it's kind of an arbitrary arbitrarily selected number um they think you know 30 percent would be a reasonable limit that's what they they had been working with during the summer and i'll say that this church um has made tremendous efforts to keep people safe they've put down floor markers they've blocked off aisles they've even had their communion wine um, pre-packaged into little sealed and portioned packages um, and, and required everyone to register to attend in advance so they've made a lot of efforts despite these best efforts they've been arbitrarily limited to 10 people during a really important time in the christian calendar
0: yeah. And it's not like this is a church basement where they've got very small walls. I mean, I was, was always kind of confused by this case, given the you know size of this particular facility. But I have to think that other religious groups, whether it be mosques or um, uh, shuls, they're probably watching this as well because they, too, have probably big facilities and they're under the same caps. And so if this case is successful, would it change uh, the status for all places of worship?
3: it would it would have a broader impact but you know those those organizations would need to have their own in, injunction because it's sort of specific to this particular church but i think you know what would happen is if they were to receive this injunction it would it would not make sense for the government to continue to impose this limit on um on other institutions whether it be other churches or mosques or synagogues or uh temples it it, it kind of um, wouldn't would make sense to have an exception for this church, but not to others. And I'll add your comment on church basements, you know, really makes sense because there's a lot of church basements I've been in or, or even like small chapels mm-hmm. where, um, you know, in the current Uh, you know, with the pandemic, 10 people might not be safe in in that environment, but it would be totally allowed under these regulations. Yet 10 people or 11 people would not be allowed in an enormous auditorium. It just goes to show how this number 10 is completely arbitrary. And you can't infringe on people's
0: fundamental rights in an arbitrary fashion. And so, what is this particular church asking for? They're not asking obviously to be at full capacity, but what would they consider reasonable?
3: So what they're asking for on Friday is the injunction, which would be that this law would not be uh, enforced, but what they what they have said publicly is that they would be they would be happy with a thirty percent capacity limit, um, which would for them would put them at, at three hundred people inside a one thousand
0: plus um, auditorium. And you can space that out. I mean, I know that there's been a lot of concern. I mean, we have seen, certainly in the United States, probably more so, but we have seen it. We've seen a few cases in Alberta where you get gatherings together, uh, places of worship, and then you get an outbreak. Uh, so they do happen. But I do think if the facility holds a 1,000, you could probably space out 300 or at least more than 10. Hey, you know, quite, I've, quite I've well. been in Costco and there's more than 300 people in there. Um, or at least it seems like there are, and they're not, they're not spaced and out. And you need a prayer um, to go to Costco because <laughs> Lord knows yeah, it tests your patience.
3: Yeah, I mean, it just shows, and and you know, Costco is not a charter protected activity. Uh, you know, I might think that the you know the the right to run a business is is fundamental, but it's actually not enshrined in our charter. Economic pr- activity isn't protected that way, but religious worship is, and it's not for the government to say. You know, it's not important for you to worship that way, or you should um, use online worship. It's just as good. It's not the position of the government to tell you how to exercise your faith. Um, so, you know, maybe not all of your listeners um, are religious, but they certainly need to respect that it's not the role of government to tell people how to practice their faith. And yeah. and the The affidavits that were filed by the church are really, really compelling. you know one of the one of the the um, women who attends this church she's in her seventies and she says she's never she lives alone. Mm-hmm. This is her only social interaction really and she's never embraced technology she couldn't use a computer even if someone gave her one because she doesn't mm-hmm. have one and and telling this woman you know you need to celebrate celebrate Christmas um, on a computer, it's, it's not accessible to her. And there's there's another, um, another person who um, is sworn affidavit who attends this church. She said that she was baptized during the summer. She's a new member of this church. And she was baptized in a period where she had just come out of a really dark period of depression. She joined the church. Um, through one of their uh, youth support groups, and it helped to bring her out of depression. Now she's had that taken away from her, and she's really worried about falling back into, you know, this, this dark period of her life again. Mm-hmm. And that's real harm. That's real and irreparable harm to these people who, who just want to exercise their Charter-protected right to worship.
0: Yeah, I mean the cases uh, involving the Bay and the Canadian appliance store were not successful, uh, which I found unfortunate. But uh, I think cases sure like the Bay
3: case is. I,
0: I think yeah, I'm not sure. A, I don't know if the Bay case has
3: been determined. I think that that was just filed recently, actually. Right, but again,
0: th- that is not a charter right. Um, you know, arguing yeah. based on the charter, no. yeah. and you are looking for these types of cases.
3: We are, yeah. So we started a search for plaintiffs on December 1st uh, on our website, the ccf.ca slash no arbitrary lockdowns And what we're looking for is people who are safety, health and safety conscious, who believe that COVID is a real threat and have made efforts to keep, um, you know, either the people at their church safe or people at their stores safe or um, whatever it is they're doing. They've made serious efforts to to respect uh, COVID social distancing rules, but despite all of their best efforts, they're kind of now being harmed by lockdowns that are being arbitrarily imposed. So this church really met the criteria of exactly what we were looking for, of a real right that's engaged and, um, the restrictions are being imposed in an arbitrary way, and a plaintiff who's health and safety conscious, that's, that's what we were looking for. And we were granted intervener status to participate in the injunction. Uh, we were granted that today.
0: All right. So Friday, I guess, is the big day when uh, you'll uh, have that. We'll keep an eye on and see what comes out of it. Yeah,
3: I'll have an update for
0: you then. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to share. And I will bug you for it. All right. Thanks so much, Christine. Thanks for having me on. Christine Van Gein is with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, so we will keep an eye on that particular issue. Talk about being scrooged. That is literally what has happened to a Toronto pub owner who uh, figured out a way to pivot to stay alive with only all of it to be stolen away. And this is the owner of the Old Sod Pub in Toronto's West End. And they've been running this campaign called Save the Sod. And because they can't open, they decided, hey, we'll sell Christmas trees as a way to stay afloat. And they sold lots. And then at one fifteen Monday morning, the owner who lives above the pub heard his windows being smashed. And by the time he got downstairs, the Grinch and his money was long gone, all $7,000 dollars. That had been earned over a lot of days. Tyler Owens is the owner of the Old Sod Pub. He joins us now. Good to have you.
1: Hey, how you doing? Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Well, you know, we hear these kinds of stories every time at this time of year because someone's in need, so they think they can take what you have. But you're also in need. You're a business guy fighting for your life. And you figured out a way to do so, and then this.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been quite an uh, interesting couple of days uh we've we've had to pivot for i'd say about ten months now um constantly trying something new uh the latest one was these christmas trees before that it was uh some unique mailer campaigns for uh burgers uh before that it was outdoor patios on the curb lanes uh before that it was trying to poach l c b o uh customers from the lineup uh, across the street by using buskers so it's been never ending uh, never ending battle yeah
0: but at least, you know, uh, you're a fighter. I mean, and that's what you're doing. You're fighting for your livelihood. And so this happens and I mean, what a kick, what a kick to the, you know, what?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, it, the, the campaign was going great. Um, you know, all of our employees, everything was, was looking good and the community was supporting us well. Uh, even, uh, Neighboring com- communities from, you know, even as far as Scarborough here in, in Toronto, we're in the, in the West End all the way in, King, in the Kingsway. So everybody was seeming to support. It was all rolling along. And, and we, were, we were finding a, a great, uh, unique source of, of, of uh, revenue. Uh, and then, um, yeah, you kick, uh, absolute kick in the whatever you want to call chops. it. We'll
0: <laughs> call it the chops.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you did um, get video of this. and
0: so there is there is imagery of this guy uh, or p- whomever it is taken off
1: there is, yeah, um, so yeah, we've got some great footage. uh, the investigators have been great so far um it's it's looking pretty good uh as far as as potentially getting him um, but yeah, the very next day we just uh we stayed positive and we got back to selling Christmas trees uh and uh, try not to let him. Uh, you know, ruin the whole campaign and, and ruin uh, everybody's Christmas spirit.
0: It's amazing that, you know, um, and I love entrepreneurs from this for this and, and business owners because they've got such a fight and a grit. And, and you know, you guys have been knocked so many times this year, just knocked through no fault of your own. And you just kind of get back up again. And this is the kind of thing that would just be like the final nail for a lot of people to say, to hell, I, I give up. And yet you didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean it's never been an option for us. The the bar here's been uh been here since 1975. Um, you know, so it's a legacy staple of our community and uh, you know, I I have to do everything in my power uh to make sure it, it stays alive. If this place goes down, then it it changes a lot of things. Um, it you know, gentrification is mm-hmm. is, is is hopefully not happening in, in this area just time soon. Anytime soon um you know, generations have grown up uh, in this bar, the Old Sod. So, uh, it, I mean, we are one Irish pub, but I think you can cookie cutter that uh, across Ontario. Um, mm-hmm. There's one of us in every, in every town, right? Uh, and once we all start going by the wayside, uh, then there's some major problems. And, and right now, whether it's the insurance industry of, of, of how hard it is for, Small businesses, especially hospitality, to get uh, uh, you know decent in insurance because they're they're uh, overlooking us and not wanting to take us as, as high high risk um, establishments. It, or if it's government shutdowns, um, it, it's you know pointing the finger at, at us when we've done everything under the sun uh, to abide by these rules. We've we've completely switched yeah. our entire business models. Um, but, but we're still to blame potentially. Uh, yeah, it's been tough. Uh, but again, there's, there's no option but to keep going.
0: Yeah. I mean, I often say those who hate gentrification are going to absolutely hate what their communities look like after this, um, this nightmare, because everything, a lot of these small businesses that make up the complexion and and give the soul of a community will be gone. Yet You've had so much community support. So I think it really speaks to the amount of care that people are kind of rallying around you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we're a live music pub. Um, so five nights a week, whether it's an open mic night or, or our live musicians, uh, one of our musicians, Brian Tyrell, has played here for, I think, 34 years in a row on the same stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we got to think about those musicians. Where do mm-hmm. they have their mm-hmm. creative space to, to perform? Um, where do people... Uh, have to to go and enjoy some live music, like, like you said. What, what's the community going to look like afterwards when everything's a condo and you're going to do what on, on a Friday night when you want to meet your friends? You know, you can um, go
0: drink at Costco. It'll be fun. But but you <laughs> yeah, have
1: <exactly.
0: laughs> there's been a um, be legal
1: a, by the way too that, probably be legal. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um. But but how can people help out? I mean, a GoFundMe campaign has been been started and and people are rallying and you're still selling trees.
1: We're still selling trees. Yeah, if you if you need a tree, there's been a, this crazy Christmas tree shortage uh, happening, but we still have uh, great stock. Uh, so if you need a tree, uh, coming down to the to uh, the old sod, 2936 Bloor Street West. But yeah, we started a GoFundMe uh, page. I guess it was early uh, early yesterday morning and yeah. we've already hit our goal it's uh, it's absurd we we cannot believe what's happened uh, oh. the support we've seen from everyone uh, it's been less than 2 days and we hit yeah. our goal uh, it, it's like we we have no words it's uh, our hearts are we're blessed
0: well there is a lot of good out there despite the bad and i hope for christmas you get a call from the police with uh, news of an arrest. But uh, Tyler, I wish you the very best of luck. And again, if you need a tree, you can get one at the uh, Old Sod Pub in the city's West End. Tyler, best of luck to you.
1: Thanks so much. And hopefully maybe in the new year, you can get a pint here as well. That would be great.
0: (laughs) We will raise a glass. That's what I look forward to. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Tyler Owens is uh, owner of the Old Sod Pub. And again, the face of uh, these businesses just hurting so badly. So if you can help them out, or you know the guy on the video, call the police. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.